At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber, all coming to you live from separate locations, starting a little bit early as the NYSE is set to switch to all electronic trading on Monday. Futures down, albeit in a relatively uh, limited fashion this morning, as economists start trying to quantify the impact we are going to see in Q2. Jobless claims spike, as we expected, up 70K to 281. We'll get an 11 a.m. briefing at the White House, guys, and spring begins tonight (laughs) at 11.49 p.m. Jim, you know, what what a range of commentary the last 24 hours, as you know, whether it's Ackman and uh, Dalio on one side. Your point, though, is uh, no revelation 6-8. Why are we not believing in science? And you've been pretty consistent on that. Right. Well, I mean, what happens today if the FDA improves uh, remdesivir? What happens if they do that? Uh, Do we then start thinking about, uh, well, geez, we got to, how much pain will be if we print all these dollars? How about if remdesivir is approved and we say, you know what, Uh, I'm really worried about Boeing. Now, Boeing, obviously, is I mentioned that because that's probably the front and center, but I'm looking at the FDA and not at the um, FED. And I think that a lot of people who came on this morning, oh, damn, Carl, I I lived in my car. And was not doing so well. It's not all done in fair weather. I listened to a lot of really rich people, some of them crying yesterday, others today talking about the end of days. They're doing the revelations. They do an appointment in Samara. I don't know. I think the American worker is a little tougher. Uh, and I think if we get remdesivir, uh, we get approval. I think we'll all say, well, well, geez, you know, maybe this thing isn't going to last forever and we can tide workers over and we can help the public health workers. So I don't know. I, I don't really know. I have no information. Maybe it's not today that the FDA does anything. But I just feel like the, the notion that science is static and that the worker is going to go down and that the hedge funds, uh, well, we should be shaking uh, because maybe their fifth beach house has to go. I don't know. I don't like the tone of the pessimists. I don't like it. Right. No, no you, yeah. don't, David, don't uh, come by my house. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to we're going to try to talk to as many smart people as we know. We got, of course, uh, Remedi and Malenkov this hour. But, uh, you know, Cuomo, yep. uh, Governor Cuomo here in New York, David, had a good point yesterday where he basically said the the episode is like this. And it goes from here to here. We don't know the duration, but we do know there is a beginning and an end, especially if if Jim, if Piper is right, that remdesivir could be approved soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that would obviously, as Jim says. Yeah, that would be a real positive, as we know, because if you can ameliorate people's concern that if, in fact, you do get this, you are conceivably uh, really threatened, that would be extremely helpful uh, and perhaps also allow things to start to move towards back towards some sort of normalcy. Um, You know, Jim, what I continue to hear, I mean, you hear so many things, obviously, and it's throughout the day. I can only imagine what it's like for the two of you as well. So many people want some sign that would give them confidence, though, now in the financial markets. I mean, my sense 
Over the last 24 to 48 hours, guys, uh, uh, the people I speak to certainly are a lot more fearful about the economy than they really are about the virus. And I don't mean to in any way imply that the virus is not serious and that we don't want to continue fighting it as best we can and stopping its spread. But I would say the concern for the economy now eclipses that for the virus. Uh, and they're looking for some signs of confidence from our government, from within the financial markets itself. So many different moving parts, Jim, at this point. Hard to know exactly even where to look or where to begin. Jeez, David, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I think that's a spot on view. The, the conversation uh, that I get is, OK, what happens if Boeing goes bankrupt? Uh, what happens if, if the banks uh, can't be saved? What happens if they decide if they're too slow? I mean, this one was in this was front and center a couple of days ago, right? I mean, Clorox and, and, and the gloves. And now it's like, OK, well, how many people are going to get laid off? We're focused on the 830 number. We see a spike. I want to look at it differently. I, I think it's really important that when you have a guy like Jim Grant, OK, Jim Grant, we know him as negative, but you also know him as a, as a terrific guy. And he's a realist, right? He's starting to talk about things that actually could go right. When the guys who have been pessimistic and, and, and correct start saying, hey, listen, let's think about these other things. It, it opens my ears, David, to a different line, which is to say, OK, what happens if, when we get through this? Do we uh, when? And no one thinks it's going to if. Or do we look at the companies that have the clean balance sheets that are the winners? I mean, is Walmart going to be the nation's retailer? OK. Or do we look at it like uh, it's bread lines and, and it doesn't matter because there'll never be demand again. So I don't know, David. I think you're absolutely right that the focus is on the economy and also a belief that no matter what comes out of Washington, it's not enough. I look at 90 votes in the Senate to try to help something. And I come back and say that maybe the politicians are less clueless than we think. Jim, uh, I, you I know, you can I see at the bottom of our screen, but uh, Ford, of course, you can see uh, borrowing $15.4 billion uh, to offset the production shutdown we learned about yesterday, suspending the dividend, uh, pu pulling guidance for 2020. Uh, Darden, similar moves uh, uh, overnight, Jim. I guess the, the question is, you know, there was a good chart this morning from Barry Ritholtz about the Dow peaking when deaths in China were already at 1,000. Right. And even after Apple's Q1 uh, warning on revenue really didn't impact the markets for several days. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you have B of A trying to quantify Q2 down 12 right. and J.P. Morgan down 14 and Alarian says that's absurd because who wh what is the market's ability to sniff out the other side of all of this? Well, look, I mean, I think let's say we see up numbers sequentially for Starbucks in China, which we're going to, as Kevin Johnson said, last night on Mad Money as they open a store in Wuhan, which is ground zero for this epidemic. Let's say if Apple sequential numbers are better in China because they can reopen the Apple stores. Uh, let's say if the government prevails upon Disney and they open up Shanghai Disney, that's not yet going to happen. Then I think we're going to say, you know what, here's what the other side looks like. It's not great. Uh, but it's not historically bad. You want some irony. I think there's a lot of irony. David's an I believer in irony. Um, Ford suspends its dividend. But we have a Morgan Stanley upgrade of uh, <laughs> of Tesla. Why? Because Tesla has, has the wherewithal and the balance sheet to win. So again, I just say, you know what, we got to think really big and creative because that is almost if I told you three months ago that Ford would be good because they survived the, the Great Recession and Tesla was uh, obviously was going to go under. That was what the narrative was. And it switched. So, you know what? We have to think bigger than what we see on our screens, because that was just inconceivable, Carl, that Ford would be the one on the ropes, the one that survived the Great Recession. And the Tesla comes out on top as the one with great liquidity. Oh, the problem would be uh, with all good three. Good point, Phil. I mean, 
Good point, Jim. I, I don't know if you noticed yeah. Elon Musk overnight suggesting on Twitter that he could start making ventilators if the shortage were acute Is there anything enough. that guy uh, let's can't get do? To fill the bow I mean, I'm waiting for him to come up with this. He probably <laughs> has a solution. He's just holding out for a little drama. Probably has the somehow that he knows how to cure. What a guy. Let's get to Phil LeBeau for more on uh, the Ford News. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl. Uh, you guys hit on this a little bit. Let me give you a little more clarity in terms of what Ford is announcing today. It is suspending its dividend of 15 cents a share. Not a surprise. I think a number of people have looked at Ford, General Motors, some of the major manufacturers. This question is coming up with Boeing. Will Boeing ultimately suspend its dividend, uh, given the fact that all of these companies are facing tighter liquidity? It is also pulling its guidance for the rest of this year. We've seen a real slowdown in retail sales, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. And then also, they're going to be accessing up to $15.4 billion from two credit lines. They've got about $35 billion in liquidity at the end of 2019. Now, we don't have an updated number, but $35 billion at the end of 2019. They've got near-term liquidity. Okay, it's not a problem. But keep in mind, guys, when you shut down production at an auto plant, which all of the automakers, the big three, have decided they're going to be doing effective either today or tomorrow, or they're in some cases phasing it in over the next couple of days, that's the cash flow that gets cut off immediately because automakers... They get paid by the dealer. So as soon as a car comes off the line and it goes out the door, that's money coming back into the company. So, guys, one last point regarding retail sales. Ford is also going to be uh, offering customers six-month payment relief for new car purchases. I bet you we see this from other automakers as well because, according to J.D. Power, guys, retail sales on Sunday – dropped 36% compared to the same time last year, and it was down just 20% at the end of last week. I think we're going to see, David, big drop-off in retail sales. Uh, we would imagine, we can only imagine, uh, Phil, that that would be the case, of course. Uh, hard to see how many people are going to actually be going to the dealership to, to buy a new automobile at this point. Phil, thank you. Phil, I have a you feeling bet. we'll be seeing a lot of, of course, continuing to cover not just the autos, but more importantly, perhaps, what is going on with Boeing. But for now, let's uh, detour uh, and uh, bring in Ginny Rometty, uh, still, by the way, the uh, CEO and president of IBM, although uh, not for much longer, but of course will remain as the company's executive chairman. Ginny, these are extraordinarily unusual times. Uh, I, I could not really ever imagine thinking that I would be bringing you in by sitting here in my dining area. Uh, but that's where we are right now. What is going on at IBM? And let me just specifically start, if I can, with the virus itself. Uh, and the capabilities you have in terms of supercomputers and Watson. What are you doing that perhaps is advancing the ability of scientists to actually figure out how they can attack this? Yes, okay, so um, let me break that into pieces. And what are we doing? So, you know, because I really believe private sector is going to play a huge part in shortening the duration, which is what you and Jim were just talking about a second ago, the economy and the duration of the health crisis. And um, three things. One, right now, I'm just looking for the cure. You know, one of the most important things you need is high-performance computing. You know we have the largest supercomputers in the world, and they're at the Department of Energy. And I was out at one of the big health centers, and they've got lots of analytics they want to do to build these vaccines, the medicines. They need the compute, the high-performance compute to run it. So one of the things we're putting together is we will be a clearinghouse, a gearbox for all the high-performance computing, whether it's at universities, labs, our own, to make it available. So think of it as really accelerating the cure, be it the vaccine or the therapeutic. 
Um, the second big thing that we, we are working on is all around this idea that can a consumer get a trusted sense of data around COVID-19 and what is happening? And as you know, CDC has that, John Hopkins has it. And I think you might forget, we own the weather company and the weather company touches half the consumers in this country. And so we're looking at ways to be a trusted source of consumer data to get that out to consumers, even down at a county level of what is happening. And then the third thing, I know this is gonna sound simple, but we've been called and we've learned this from all the other countries we worked in already. Because remember, we're not the first in this. So we've got a lot of learnings from China, Japan, Korea, Europe, and making available uh, Watson chatbots to really help some of the states and the governments with their call times are two hours in waiting to answer some simple questions. And so those are just three big things we're doing. And I mean, put that on the side of just some of the things private sector can do. In addition to, we've got centers we're making available for hospitals if they are needed out there, et cetera. I flipped to the other side. You said, you know, what are we doing for ourselves? Um, the first thing was obviously, like everyone you've had on, is about safety of people which so far we have done a great job with that. But you guys know we run the mission critical systems of the world. And in times like this, what's invisible really becomes visible to people now that all those systems work. And so I am really proud. Our team has done a super job. I have hundreds of thousands of people that are working remote. We worked on this over years to be sure that could happen. And we got a lot of clients struggling still with how to go remote. We've moved banks in days to go remote. Uh, in, in Madrid, we had to take a million kids and get them on online learning. Um, Jim and I have talked so much about New York City schools. Commissioner Tish has us helping. There's 300,000 kids in New York that don't have access to online learning, that we're getting them internet connected. So the first thing is about safety, and then can you work productively remote? Yeah. Uh, Jenny, um, specific to IBM, I could uh, obviously I couldn't have been in your imagination. I would think that this is how your tenure as CEO would be coming to an end with an economic crisis coupled with a health crisis. Um, your dividend yield is six point two percent. You've obviously, like so many companies, bought back a meaningful amount of stock over the last number of years. How are you feeling at IBM in terms of your clients and their ability to pay you and the financial situation in which the company finds itself right now? Yeah, that's a, it is a great question. And um, look, I feel very good. We have a very strong balance sheet and we have been working on keeping it strong. And remember, I feel like we, you know, we watched what happened in China months ago. So as I go through the list with free cash flow, you know, Jim was just talking about balance sheets and liquidity, free cash flow, 12 to 13 billion. Then you click down to and you say, our dividend secure, then strong investment grade. And I pop over and I think about, you know, at the end of the year, we'd already retired 10 billion of the debt on Red Hat. And part of our debt is for our IBM global financing business, but that is all asset backed and it is all investment grade as being paid back as well. And then you mentioned share repurchase. Um, you know, I have really, really re reduced our share repurchase for a good number of years now. And when we announced Red Hat, we also then stopped share repurchase. So I feel really good about IBM's balance sheet being extremely strong and us being conservative and doing everything we can to keep it strong. You know, you've mentioned about pensions. And as an example, you know, of course, we closed our pensions long ago, but we still obviously pay them to large numbers of people. Our U.S. pension, even after everything in the market, is well over 100 percent funded still. And so I feel very good about that. And then you flip over to, therefore, who are we helping? And I look at, again, you know, we've talked a lot about this. What first is how to help people work. 
And then the clients we work with, whether it's the banks, whether it is the insurance companies, whether it is the healthcare providers, um, what we're doing now is very interestingly changing. Like, let me just take the banks. Uh, over these last mm, just couple weeks, uh, they are doing modeling and we are helping them and not only modeling, preparing that the volume transactions they'll deal with can be 40 to 60% larger or the no- amount of risk analytics they're doing. That's what we do. Even the retailers, the knock-on effect of commercial flights not going means that you know cargo goes in a number of those commercial flights. So we're doing analytics and helping them how to get cargo to move to other places. And so I see the nature of the work we're getting called in to do. It's all around keeping those critical supply chains moving because you know it's easy to say keep grocery stores open, but back up everything that has to happen between that and a farm to keep a grocery store open. And those are all the critical systems of the world. And so those are the kind of clients that we're supporting. Ginny, it's, uh, it's good to, to see you and to hear you as Jim. Thank you for coming on. First thing I need to think of is what's going to happen on the other side of this. We have so many pessimists who come on. The questions David had about the dividend, yet you and I both know, I mean, the cash flow here is extraordinary. But uh, I'm looking for themes that are going to come out on the other side. And I think one of them is 5G, and we're going to hear from someone later about that. And the other is the strength of the cloud. And I think that you've directed the company toward the strength of the cloud. Can you talk to me about a year or two from now, something that is going to happen that is not the end of days? Yes, look, I, I am actually, I've, I've spent a lot of time with the team already. And how we help clients with that and ourselves, by the way. And so the amount of work that will be done in a remote sense uh, is absolutely going to change. And that is one of the things 5G enables, you know, because 5G, the biggest uses are going to be in companies. So when you do, as an example, a remote surgery today, you'd be a little bit nervous because what if the connection broke up? Think of how many times as you've been doing these interviews, you wouldn't want them to stop right at the important point. But with 5G, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's the same as your eye blinking. You are going to have that same real-time experience. And therefore, so many things, whether it's the way learning is done, whether it is the way that a factory operates, you walk in a factory today and there's cords everywhere. And David, you and I did that interview on 5G in the industry applications. I think this will then accelerate those kind of applications on the other side. And it will change the way that we're able to do our work. And, and by the way, with all that online learning, I think we're going to make, and, and I'm, we're really preparing, you know, strong believer that there can be more jobs in technology for more people. And this is going to accelerate all those online uh, certifications and the like that can come out there. So I am focusing as well time on not just health, not just on cure, not just on keeping the systems running, but what are the great new ways that work, work can change as we come out the other side. Uh, Jenny, I think your uh, lasting legacy will be the hundreds, not tens of, but hundreds of thousands of students, particularly from more, poor backgrounds, uh, that have been able to be part of the new workforce. What do we do with, I mean, there's just a huge number of people who we thought were going to finish the school year and do well, and suddenly they're stuck in a position where they're not going to graduate or they're not going to get the education. IBM has already been so helpful. I guess we got to reach back and say, what more can you do? Because you know these kids need it. Yeah, look, just a couple quick things. One is even starting with what you can do right now, uh, as many kids still are in school, and as I just mentioned, we'll be helping Commissioner Tish getting 300,000 kids online in New York. Um, First is how to get them to productively work in an online mode all the time. We're dealing with that with employees. A home office is a schoolroom. And this is probably true for almost everyone is watching that has any children. 
And so how do you get that to work effectively? But the next thing we can do, and you know, we're working with the government on this, and there's a whole group of us, uh, in addition to all our individual efforts, uh, we'll be launching a campaign about how to move into choosing something new, new ways of doing work through all the certifications and all of the non-four-year degree necessarily available career paths in our companies. And so this is going to, as soon as we kind of get through these next couple months, we're going to be launching that. And that to me is another way to bring many people back into the workforce. And while they may not go back into the job they had before, we can bring them into the digital side, which is, I think, even even more exciting for many people. And so for us, Jenny, that's we're a- going to carry on with what we've done, Jim, you know, with P-Tech, which is 150, almost 200,000 kids around the world now, which are six-year high schools coming online. And then this is for mid-career and others to switch into these professions. Jenny, at lead, that's a great point. And it leads me to my question, which is, you know, viewers are waking up this morning, they're turning on the TV, they see the numbers, they understand the news flow we're in. And and we're in a chapter where businesses, large businesses and small, are trying to solidify, protect, close down, uh, retrench. But at some point, once we learn to adapt with all of this, uh, there's going to be a race to start up again. And I wonder what signs you'll be looking for to determine what when that tipping point will be. Well, first, can I just I want to make a comment on something you've talked a lot about related to this, which is. In part, you know, and as every day the news changes here, but the focus has been on when it comes to the crisis, shorten it. But when it comes to what the government does with, think of it as financial packages, stimulus packages, you know, being bold and being big. And it's related to your question, David, because the point is that as I think of what's required and you say, what do you look for tipping points? First and foremost, I worry about the individual level and the small, medium business. Because otherwise, you were talking about a minute ago, the large just get larger here. And so we have got to protect those two things first and foremost, and of course, critical industry, but those. And so when you say, what am I looking for in a tipping point? I think as a tipping point, it's bringing people back in because I think the kind of work that people are going to do going forward, I'm looking again at all the companies who don't have the resiliency that they ought to have, don't have the ability to work in different ways. They are now going to want to go and do all of that work, and we'll be bringing in people to do that. Ginny, uh, finally, uh, you know, you mentioned how you have relied less on share buybacks over the last few years. Uh, it does appear that if anything comes, well, so many things are going to come out of this period, but one of them is going to be stigmatizing buybacks. We're hearing it already. How many companies have bought back shares? I think Paul Pullman this morning uh, tweeting, of course, the former CEO of Unilever for many years, that since mid-2017, America's big cap companies repurchased one and a quarter trillion in shares. And of course, Mr. Pullman questions, as so many others are right now, whether that was, in fact, a smart use of capital uh, or simply a sign of the real economy being subservient to financial markets. When we come out of this, do you think, as somebody who's obviously also been focused on the capital structure of your company for many years, that share buybacks are going to be relied on less or frowned upon more? Well, I, I definitely think what people are going to do, and is what we've done, is prioritize that have you invested everything you need to invest to so that you can exist for the next century, be that the next decade, the next century, and then you're going to put that secondary. And these are the decisions I've had to make in my tenure about completely reducing that to reinvest back into the business, as Jim said, to now grow a $22 billion cloud business. I had to do that for those reasons and to build so that IBM will be here for the next century. So I think that will become 
very vivid to people about the priority and the order of where they put their capital. Ginny, certainly appreciate uh, your coming on during these trying times. Thank you. Uh, look forward to seeing you again uh, soon. Ginny Rometty, of course, chairman and president and CEO of IBM. That transition will take place in the CEO role. I believe it's April 8th. Ginny Rometty, back to you, Carl. Thank you. All right, David, thank you. And another eventful overnight for the Fed, this time regarding money markets. And I think Steve Leisman has some additional news this morning. Morning, Steve. Yeah, Carl, another hour, an additional Fed news uh, of what they're doing here. Uh, you can't say they haven't moved fast. I want to report this morning, the Federal Reserve increasing the purchases that it's doing. These are the outright purchases. Remember that $700 billion program we told you about? Well, it did 40 and it did 40 now. It's up that almost double to $75 billion. That's across a range of tenors in the uh, uh, <clears throat> Treasury market and in the uh, agency-backed mortgage market. I, I guess that's a sign that they feel like they need to come in and take more of that paper out. That's just one of the things it did this morning. At 9 o'clock, it announced that it increased the number of swap lines out there, dollar swap lines with foreign banks, added nine central banks. So now there are 14 total. It's about the number, I believe it's the same number as we had in the financial crisis. So now this is an ability to uh, solve the dollar funding problem throughout the world. And of course, that comes on the heels of 11.30 last night, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury announced a major backstop for money market funds. So it is true, Carl, another hour, another Fed action here. We don't know if they have all the pieces in place just yet to really put the backstop on trade in the economy or in the financial system. Sure, asset prices will decline. The Fed's interest here is making sure they decline in an orderly way and that there's liquidity to get from here to there. Carl? Uh, I'll take it, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Steve Leisman, of course, uh, with uh, the latest on those Fed moves. Um, let's get to a mad dash. Uh, haven't done this in a while. I'm accustomed to doing it sort of cross-country, Jim, when you're either in San Francisco, as you typically have done uh, every quarter or so. Now we're just, well, I'm, you know, I'm in Connecticut. You're in New Jersey. I miss you, actually. I wish I was, I was uh, there so we could sort of have our usual... Uh, time together. Uh, McCormick is what you want to focus on for the Mad Dash. Let's take yeah, it Yeah, I miss you and Carl. This, this thing, the separation, they forget. Uh, morally, it just feels awful. Physically, obviously, we have to do it. Uh, you know what? There's a downgrade today from uh, B of A, and I think it's kind of emblematic of what I'm concerned about, which is McCormick. They expect slower global food service demand, downgrade to underperform. We keep seeing, the, and the reason I say this is because we keep seeing these staples that everybody likes so much have some sort of hair on them. Yesterday, a downgrade to Coca-Cola. Turns out that they're bottlers that may be uh, starved for capital. This is it. Remember, McCormick has a substantial food business, uh, food service business, and those have been not so great. Look at Aramark. It's a shame because otherwise, I know I had Hormel on last night, and wow, they're killing it with spam. I know, David, that, that uh, your wife's not a big fan, but we, we subsist on anything at our place. And, and I, I, this, this piece, otherwise, Franks and French's uh, and Spices, we're in a stay-at-home economy. So I'm going to go against this McCormick piece. I know it was up really big yesterday, but the stay-at-home economy is gigantic. And whether it be Zoom or, or whether it be Hormel, we're hunkering down. And, uh, you know, David, you're maybe hunkering down in, in Connecticut. I'm going to be going uh, solo in New Jersey, uh, hunkering down big time with rice and beans. Yeah, Jim, right, I, yeah, I, make it sure is to a good point. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, 
Uh, Jim, today Credit Suisse takes Clorox to neutral uh, on valuation to a large degree. But I I loved your Hormel interview last night. And uh, there's reports today about uh, closing the border with Canada, the degree to which uh, that may impact shipments of agricultural goods, which obviously is a big part of the food supply chain. How much risk do you see in there? Uh, one of the things that, that Hormel talked to me about was of the, of the chains that are out there, whether it be the supply chain for auto or the supply chain for aerospace, uh, the strongest is the supply chain for food. Uh, Hormel was just saying, listen, it's actually working. Uh, so I know that we have a perfect storm of negativity, whether it be oil, whether it be airlines, uh, whether it be obviously the uh, health care, ventilators, I don't know, remdesivirs maybe not being approved. But the one thing that seems to be holding up well is the actual food chain. It's, it's working. Uh, and so I guess I, I could say um, it could be worse. And we don't experience the lockdown like my daughter, who is an English teacher in Madrid, where they have uh, they're, they're Yes, they're allowed to use uh, real blunt force if you leave your place. It's almost China like. So, you know, I think that we got we have grocery stores. We got food. I mean, it could be worse. <laughs> uh, Nasdaq futures go green, Jim, as you're as you're talking. You know, one of some of the technicians that are looking at charts uh, this week say, look, uh, we don't care if um, uh, there are if the, the, the looking for signs of health. Right. You don't want to see large moves down or large moves up. And yeah. so I wonder if you are taking some comfort in uh, this. What we what looks appear today, obviously early, uh, temp, tepid signs of uh, lessening volatility. Oh, that's fine. I mean, at three thirty a.m., we had kind of a mini bull market in the futures, and then they got hit really hard at four forty-five. Went negative at five forty, then came all the way back. And all I can say is the knuckleheads and morons who are oh, I'm sorry, Jimmy Chill, the people who are ill-advised in trading those things, <laughs> tr- truly, truly are just having some. Why don't they just go play some gin rummy or something? It would be more valuable. Uh, the uh, S&P oscillator, which I follow from nineteen eighty-five had the strongest negative reading, meaning the most oversold, uh, actually exceeding the crash of, of 1987. And I think that's important because it was a sucker's game to short 1987. Now, look, we don't get anything from the FDA today, and Boeing suddenly files bankruptcy. Well, we'll take out that, too, and I, those are just conjectures. But uh, I do think that what we want is not a big snapback, because that's going to be like the other one that we had the other day. It was up big, and that was a sucker's rally. We need to see some stabilization. We see, need to see the go down. But, you know, when you look at the averages yesterday, they're completely lying. If you look at the REITs, it basically said that those guys are probably going to go under. If you look at the retailers, you see some prices that you can't really look at. The restaurants, we looked at Darden last night and Eaton last night uh, and and, uh, Eat. They look like they're bankrupt. And and, and you know what? All I'm saying is, is that if you buy companies that have good balance sheets, you might you actually might do well here. Yeah. Jim, let's get the bell here uh, at the NYSC, uh, where, again, they'll go all electronic starting Monday. We got a bit of a head start on that just uh, so we can get our operations and logistics down. That's Chris Taylor, vice president of NYSE listings at the Nasdaq. It is Bob McCooey, the global head of capital markets. And Jim, a really quick shout out here as breath fills in to all of the IT managers and the HR managers uh, around corporate America and small business to the degree you can work from home. Um, It is a bit of a small miracle what we are able to do as a country. And imagine if this crisis had hit without this capability. Oh, boy. You know, I have Verizon on tonight just to talk about whether that the system that did not get overloaded. I know David's very focused on 5G. 
Uh, the, the, the IT people, unbelievable. Hey, how about the public health people? They're just out there right now. We know that they're going to be 10 times the number of people who are infected because we're way behind. And those people, I mean, I, I, look, I, we're, I come to work in a suit. Oh, David with the no tie. But we, like, come to desk. I mean, those people, they, they, they ain't just playing with Clorox. So let's have a shout-out to them, too. Um. Guys, as the market opens here, of course, uh, you know, every day is its own uh, singular event, it, it seems. I mean, yesterday, so many people uh, calling to talk about dislocations in so many different asset classes. We saw yields back up, of course, in the government. We saw that incredible fall uh, in oil prices yesterday, a bit of a rebound, at least the last I, I had looked. But that in and of itself, its own incredible story at this point. Um, a lot of talk, of course, about mass forced liquidity events at various funds that you might imagine is true, although there's also so much room for rumor uh, in a market like this. You know, those that are running these risk parity strategies, big hedge fund complexes, people concerned about funding stresses there. Unclear how much, again, is true or not. But, Jim, uh, you know, during the course of one day, we can go through what feels like the events that would typically take place well, in a month, if not even a longer period of time, given the, the moves, the, the volatility, of course, that you and Carl were just talking about. Well, David, what that brings to mind is something you know better than anyone else in the country. Remember, of course, from the hedge fund days when you made the, you know, made the unfortunate calls. What it says to me is that there's some people who are not in control of their capital. They're either having redemptions or having margin calls because the moves are so accentuated. I can't believe it's just uh, people saying, you know what, I don't, I don't want to own uh, – Brinker at eight. I, I really want to get rid of Southwest Air. Are there some people who are uh, motivated not by uh, by price, by value, but by someone from the margin department who's saying, get that money in by two o'clock or you're gone? Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely an element of that going on in various markets. There's got to be, you know, and we've got to stay focused on sort of these larger questions, too, in terms of uh, some of the, you know, the banks that are obviously there to some extent for players in the financial markets, those that are huge commodity traders uh, in the oil markets globally. Um, and then you get back to things like the airlines and the bailout that we assume is going to take place in the not too distant future. One would expect. I know the government was out signing up uh, legal counsel uh, very recently to represent it in what would obviously be a fairly complex structure. And then, guys, there's the bigger question, Jim, which we haven't talked about today which is what are Mnuchin and company going to do here in terms of getting money into the hands of employees out there? You know, Jim, you were talking about this a lot during yesterday's show, and it's not as though it's gone away. In fact, it's only picked up steam. Many different people coming forward with potential plans. I'm hearing about them during the course of the day. People trying to get them into Secretary Mnuchin's hands in right. terms of maybe this is the better way to go or that's the better way to go. One that I'd love you to chime in on, because I've talked to a number of leaders in the financial services community about this who sort of seem at least to coalesce around the basic idea, is as follows. That you would refinance the first lien uh, and some second lien loans and bonds on the balance sheets of, of, of companies, not necessarily your biggest companies, mm -hmm. but many of the ones that we know about that have those frontline employees who are going to lose their jobs. Uh, the employment loan would come from the government. It might replace the banks or perhaps it would backstop the banks. It depends. Uh, and it would be equal to about 50 percent of the compensation deduction that the company took on its 18 returns. You could have an interest rate of five to eight percent, but it could pay in kind for the first two years, mature in five to seven years. The idea is 
get at the very top of the capital structure, replace the banks or augment the banks, and get the money to the employees. Jim, I know you're hearing a lot of these plans. I know you're talking to people as well who are in a position to actually implement some of these plans. When are we going to get something that happens here? Because every hour matters. I know. I mean, I just was going back and forth with the Treasury Secretary and they come up still with you know, the president's determined to support the U.S. economy. And there are many great U.S. companies that will merge strong. I mean, we, we're still getting what I regard as a very high level. I hesitate to use the word platitude. But yeah, but what you revealed is very good for companies that are solvent. Uh, but I, I care far more, put my other hat on, about small, medium sized business. And every time I, I cringe when I hear that, you know what, we're going to make loans uh, available. Uh, you know, that's all you need is to have a business that can't do business that's told to close where you then layer on debt. So when you open, <laughs> you close again because you can't afford the debt. We, I like your plan for the solvent companies. It doesn't do much for the companies that are insolvent immediately because the government but, has demanded yeah. them to be insolvent. Right. But Jim, I mean, we know in six months or some period of time, we're going to be out of this and right. they're going to be in a position to actually have their business operating again. No, this I mean, you can infuse like capital this. to those companies right. well, to they, let them actually operate. Boeing and is down the government the steps into the top of the right. liability stack. Yeah. Boeing is down the most in the Dow. If what you heard and boy, that would be terrific. If that came out and were said it's available to Greg Smith, the CFO of Boeing, uh, then I think that Boeing would not be the stock that would weigh on the Dow. Uh, if the president were to call Saudi Arabia and say, all right, guys, hey, you know what? Terrific. You wiped out half of our industry, but we're going to remain energy independent because we want to be independent of you. Because when you're overrun by the bad guys, we're not going to be there. You get oil back to twenty eight thirty. Then we able to preserve the permit. There's some things the government can do. It's maybe five calls. It could be done by 11. FDA comes in and does rem, you know, remdesivir, the uh, Gilead drug. And what we're going to say is, why did we decide that uh, that five, uh, 10 million workers had to be thrown out? So I like the plan. It needs to be put in action, uh, especially when we need to refinance in the first lien and, and, and extend any maturity. But that has to go to the like Boeing's two million people. Please do not think that we're trying to rescue the CEOs. Let them get no pay. No right. pay. Do a Mark Cuban. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, it's a good point, Jim. Uh, and it reminds me it, re- it reminds me of what uh, Marriott has said this morning um, on their conference call, uh, suspending Arnie Sorensen's salary for the balance of the year, uh, reducing salaries for senior executives by half, uh, temporary leaves in North America, cutting work weeks around the world, and a pullback on essential uh, spending. I wonder, Jim, what your take was on these reports that uh, Kudlow floated the government taking equity stakes in companies that need massive aid, uh, Schumer requiring a commitment to lay off no employees as opposed to 90 percent, which was Sorkin's idea earlier in the week. Well, look, I, I, I look, I like anything that protects the workers. I think that the big problem when you go back and look, what was the punishment from Dodd-Frank for uh, for the investments in the banks, which actually made money, by the way, the Federal Reserve made money for the Treasury. What was the pun- punishment was, you know, what? we can't keep doing this because the CEOs made out like bandits. So what we have to do is just take a look at the proxy, see who the highest paid people are and tell them, look, you can get this first lien. But you know what? That money, your salary is going to go to the workers. Now, I know that that's going to sound a little too much like what is to be done. Lenin's seminal treaties about what we should do with corporations. But I don't think any of us care. I think at this point we cannot have the fat cats make money at the expense of the workers. Uh, Now, I have to ask you guys, will there be a fifth fifth home hedge fund provision? 
because we've had a couple of hedge funds on this morning who behold, there is a pale horse uh, yesterday, too. And, you know, it's shaking because I think uh, I don't want class warfare in this country. And the way you get class warfare in this country is to have billionaires tell us, look out, the, the, uh, it's the end of days. We got to be a little more focused. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, are, are you uh, well, referring I, I directly to Ackman? No, oh, come yeah. on. No yeah. picking on people. This is Jimmy Chill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could have used was, a little Jimmy Chill. He had chill. our air for, for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. it's all right. Well, yeah. You know what? This programming. It was, it, it was suboptimal, I think. It was suboptimal, and I, I would actually advise, I would say, say. ill-advised along with suboptimal. But you know what? Yeah. Everyone's entitled you know, to opinion. We've yeah. got that view. We learned they that early are. on when we were in fifth grade. They are. You want to try to keep emotion out of it as best Thank you, you can. Thank I will you. say, Carl, like you know, I, uh, on this, I, yeah, on on this idea of the government taking stakes that I guess Kudlow brought up. I mean, in part, that was done. You know, there was a great deal of moral hazard that was obviously brought on by the banks and the idea, perhaps, as a government would be in there uh, as a significant shareholder to to balance that. I'm not hearing that on this time. I mean, most of these companies. Other than buyback stock, perhaps, over the years, instead of using the capital in a different way, though it's not clear to me that they wouldn't have been pressured to use their capital. So it's not clear that they would have had oodles of cash sitting around. But nonetheless, they did not do anything here that is bringing this on. This is not deserved in some way. This is an unexpected event that has overtaken so many companies at this point. I'm not hearing a desire on the the part of many that the government take a stake, in part because it's going to have the effect of depressing stock prices even further, perhaps, because of the dilution that would take place. I think, again, better to have the government come in to backstop the banks or replace the banks at the very top of the stack in some fashion for companies that need the aid as opposed to taking equity stakes. Yeah, David's right. I mean, I looked at the equity stake idea, and I think that you can have the option of doing that if you're the CEO. But, of course, obviously, no more buyback and, and no more payment, no more CEO payment during this period. That's what distinguished I mean, what did the bankers do wrong during the, uh, the other days. I mean, they said, listen, you know, we were making 10 million this year. And you know what? We're not going to make as much as 10 million. No, they got to take that away. But I think you're right, David. I'm precipitous in saying equity stake unless a company says we want the equity stake, which is no different from and mm-hmm. we'll put someone on the board. So I think that you're cool headed on this and very factual. All right, guys, let's check in with uh, Bob Pisani, who would normally be on the floor. But uh, we're all trying to uh, work out our future teamwork and logistics. And uh, he's joining us remotely as well. Morning, Bob. Uh, And who would have thought uh, that I'd be here in my home rather than down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? You know, the New York Stock Exchange floor closing is really a microcosm of what's going on around the country. The NYSE is essentially like a giant mall that's got restaurants and stores in it. And the restaurants and stores are essentially the floor brokers and the designated market makers that are out there. So you can say we're going to close it and reopen this giant mall two months from now. But the question is, are all the restaurants and all the shops going to be able to efficiently open two months from now. And that was one of the concerns uh, that existed about closing the NYC. And of course, they did make the right decision as soon as there were any positive coronavirus cases. Let's look at the sectors uh, this morning here. A little bit of bifurcation, but not dramatic here. Healthcare, consumer staples also down, not as much as banks and uh, industrials. Uh, energy was briefly positive, And once again, they press it. They have just been pressing any, any rally in energy uh, for the last several weeks. I want to show the broader markets, which caused so much distress yesterday to traders. Uh, most traders, my, I haven't 
on top. The first thing I have is the S&P 500. The second thing that I have is uh, the bond market, LQD, uh, and that was a little weaker uh, yesterday, continues to be weak today. Uh, oil uh, up, 18-year uh, low up today, but down big yesterday. Gold uh, fractionally on the upside as well. So that's not as bad as it was yesterday, but there was a lot of distress when everything was down dramatically. At least today, uh, oil, you see, is on the upside here. Um, they were talking about Mr. Cudlow and talking about maybe buying equity stakes. This has got Wall Street in a tizzy. People are remembering what happened with some of the bailouts where the equity got wiped out. And so it's a problem. Boeing's down another 9% today. The airlines still having problems here. And I think this is a real overhang. So they've got to clarify this. Are we just talking about government loans, 20 billion, 40 billion, whatever to Boeing? Or are we talking about loans that convert to equity in some way? If it's a loan to convert to equity, Wall Street's going to have a very, very different viewpoint because of what happened in the 2008 financial crisis. I want to remind people about where we are right now. And we keep saying, well, the S&P is 30 percent off its highs. And it is. But you want to look at the broader market. While most everything else is roughly around there in the major indices, the Russell has gotten clobbered. And I don't think we've been emphasizing that up. The Russell 2000 down 42% from its high. So it's suffered. Small caps uh, here in the United States, small businesses have suffered much more than the larger businesses. I think that's a key point here. Finally, a little shout out to Nick Colas uh, over at Datatrack, who pointed out some of the disparities in the way these indexes are constructed. They are market cap weighted indexes. The S&P Tech Index is only 18% off its high. But remember, the S&P Tech Index is 41% Microsoft and Apple. 21% Microsoft 20% Apple. So essentially, because Microsoft and Apple aren't down as much, Microsoft's only down 11, Apple's down 16, the rest of the stocks in this, which are the majority, of course, are really suffering. They're down a lot more. So Micron's down 35. IBM, you just had Genon, 23%. And LAM Research, that all of the semiconductors down a lot more. So this goes back to what I call the politics of index construction. You got to know what's in them. And of course, Carl, there's a lot of these ETFs out there that don't wait these companies by market cap. They weight them by other factors, equal weight. Some of them weighted by quality. Some of them weight them by, by earnings. Uh, and maybe that's a, another way to look at that because obviously you're going to get a very different uh, result here if you weight them other than market capitalization. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. Talk to you in a bit, uh, Bob Bassani. Uh, Dow down okay. about 3%. Let's check in with Rick Santelli this morning as well. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Boy, there's just so much volatility going on. And it certainly seems as though some of these negative rates and low rates around the world are getting a whole lot more positive. Let's look at a week to date of 10-year note yields and realize we at least peaked so far at 127 yesterday. Intraday, that was right about an hour before the stocks closed, and of course it tapered off a bit. Here we now hover uh, right around 112, so we're down a little bit, settled basically around 117, 118. Let's look at what's going on with regard to other paper across the globe. Let's look at what's going on in Italy, for example. The Italian tens, unbelievable volatility. Boone's unbelievable volatility. Matter of fact, Boone's right now are, are hovering at some of the best levels that we have seen. It is unbelievable. It's getting, it's now on the sunny side of minus 20. Okay, and Italian rates, which were at three percent yesterday, around 182 today. And you look at Swiss, the Swiss 10-year. It was at minus 100 last week. Now it's at minus 24. These are big moves, and actually, in a perverse sort of way, it will make recalibration of all global rates better. You know, remember, uh, 
we have not really normalized on the rate structures, uh, economy to economy, uh, large developed economies, European, Japanese, U.S., Chinese, since the credit crisis. And this is not necessarily a good thing, but it's going to put everybody on a much closer footing. Uh, maybe the dark side is we haven't really seen Europe or Japan heal from some of this. We heard Jim Grant talking with Joe Kernan this morning about that exact topic. When it comes to foreign exchange, though, nobody's beating what's going on in the dollar. Here's a chart going back to early 2017 of the dollar index, which right now, should it close, be at the best levels basically in three years, March of 2017. Uh, it is just so aggressive. It is really showing us in real time uh, this unbelievable insatiable demand for dollars, and it's not necessarily a good thing. Once again, I still say the amount of time we're going to spend over 100 isn't going to be long, but that doesn't mean we won't get up to 104, 105, 106, but it will moderate, and when it moderates, most likely that will coordinate with some global reprieves with regard to equity prices. David, back to you. Okay, Rick, thank you, Rick Santelli. Uh, take a look at shares of Qualcomm. This morning, the stock is down. Of course, like so many others, it is down roughly 32 or so percent over the last three months. But it is still up about 5% over the last year. Joining us now is the company's chairman and CEO, Stephen Molikoff, who has joined us many times. But this is, I'm sure, somewhat unique. Steve, always good to hear from you. Always good to have you. I want to start on the business itself and then talk more broadly about 5G. What are you seeing from your customer base right now? What are your expectations? You only recently raised your dividend 5%. I guess, do you regret having done that? <laughs> no, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're in a strong position from a, from a cash perspective and, and clearly a strong balance sheet. And I think very, very fortunate to have that going into an event like this. Um, but in terms of what we're seeing from our customer base, uh, you, have to, you have to think about it from the perspective of where they are. We have, we have a lot of... Um, Asian-based handset OEMs. Of course, we, we sell a lot into the into the China market, and so what you see a little bit is really a recovery um, with respect to the to the uh, coronavirus and the impact of it. So, for example, you saw big. If you're just looking at activations of cell phones, for example, in China in week five, so the end of uh, January, you saw a big a big dip. That actually recovered um, by week ten, which is really the beginning of March, and so. You know, they obviously had a very fast reaction to to the uh, to the virus, and but but it was very good to see that the demand and the and the activations, which are essentially people buying cell phones and turning them on, has returned. So it's it's really turned back to the same level that you had a year ago. Clearly, a very difficult time in in February, but um, but good to see that returning. In terms of what our customers are doing, their supply chains are back to 70, 80 percent. They continue to prioritize, I think, technologies that I think are good for Qualcomm, meaning that they're taking their capacity and allocating it to new phones using 5G, and they're trying to figure out how to take advantage of it. I think everyone's trying to, to um, you know, determine what the impact of the, of the you know, to the, to the U.S. and the European consumer, but um, in terms of things that we can control and the impact in, in, in China, you know, you've got a little bit of, uh, of a recovery, at least in terms of what we're seeing relative to what we saw in February. Right. Uh, well, Steve, I've known you for many years. You're an engineer. You have a very ordered mind. Think about things in a sort of a linear fashion. How do you view what's going on here in the U.S. when you look at the virus, when you look at what you're seeing in terms of shutdowns in the U.S. economy? How are you thinking about Qualcomm, its position, uh, and when, in fact, we're sort of going to get 
to your point on China on the other side of this? Well, I would say, you know, you have to think about the things you can control and the things you can't control. As a company, what we can control is can we take care of our employees and can we make sure that the business continuity is there? And we've, I think we've done a good job at doing that. With, and in an environment, I think it's very difficult to anticipate. So, for example, we have the majority of our development teams are still making progress, but they're making progress from home. Uh, a lot of that has to do with some planning that we did to be able to work remotely. We still have people in the labs that have to be in the labs, essential personnel, but a very small percentage. Uh, but we're, you know, we're working from home and that's working. Uh, we'll continue to work on 5G. We don't think it will impact the 5G schedules that we're working on, uh, which is very good. And I think a testament to the good planning. Um, in terms of the consumer and what, what the impact will be to our business, um, the only thing we can really think about is make sure that we have a strong balance sheet and take care of anything that we can, we can take care of, which, which we will be able to do. Um, I will tell you, we continue to hire. We continue to, uh, to add uh, engineering talent because we're excited about the opportunity that's coming with 5G. And we have to make sure that we're prepared to come out of this dip. How long it's going to take and, and, and all of that, I think it's very difficult for us to to uh, add anything to that debate, but we have to make sure that we're prepared to take advantage of what we think will be a good environment after we, we emerge from this period. Hey, Steve, Jim Cramer, always good to see you. Yes, uh, good your to see you, Jim. Your company's known as being, uh, I'm going to switch directions here, David's got the 5G covered, so, uh, and, and what you guys are doing in, in the future, but your company's known as being perhaps the best corporate citizen in America when it comes to what you do for a city. Uh, how do you step up here? How do you help public health workers? I mean, they seem to be the most exposed right now. They're the ones that are working overtime. We talk about the workers in aerospace and obviously worried about small business. But the ones I'm most worried about are the people who are actually like in the hospitals right now for the 10 time explosion we're going to have. What can corporate America do? And I know everyone looks to you because you've seemed to have thought about everything when it comes to trying to help the town. Well, I think I think we we don't have any special answers. I think we we feel fortunate to have the opportunity to help out when we can help out. We actually helped out uh, in China to a small degree, uh, and I think everyone's trying to figure out how they can do the best the best work. You know, it, and and you're you're right. It's the healthcare workers. It's people that have um, that really don't have the strong positions that that you might have if you're employed in a big corporation like Qualcomm or others that you have on here every day. Uh, and I think everyone from the business community is trying to figure out how to help people. We unfortunately don't have the ability to manufacture some of the medical equipment and supplies that they they so desperately need. But I think providing direct financial um, help to to people in, in the communities we work and live in um, is something that Qualcomm will be doing. We're, we're evaluating that right now. We're also trying to figure out, are there things that we can do to encourage people or make their life easier in terms of working from home or educating from home, which is a new thing that's happening now? A lot of people don't have access to broadband, and uh, they need to have some access through cellular. So we're trying to make sure that we can encourage people to do that. I know some of the carriers are doing the same thing. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we, like a lot of other businesses, will try to figure out the best way that we can help. But it's, but it's just an, an enormous problem, as, as you know, to, to, to try to support people. Hey, Steve, it's heartening to listen to your, uh, your, your data on a cell phone activation and supply chains out of Asia. How do you calm concerns among people who believe that other metrics coming out of Asia and specifically China are simply not reliable? Well, I think I think in terms of, um, you know, order flow and, and what's happening to our supply chain, there's there's a lot. We know what's going on there, obviously. Uh, you know, our employees are, are are back to work in terms of factory employees. Our our um, production that we're seeing still remains. Uh, the real question, of course, is is what happens with the consumer 
in in the West. I mean, the, the you know, I, I always use the analogy that I think the sun has come up in in uh, in China with respect to um, the, the the restoration of how this uh, how they re, how they return to kind of a normal state. And we'll see what happens as uh, as people get through um, you know preparations and dealing with what I think is still a ramping issue uh, elsewhere in the world. Now, for us, you have to put that into what what can we do and what can we uh, you know not influence. And for us, the best thing is make sure that our schedules are on track to the degree we can, and make sure we take care of our people. And I think every company is trying to figure out how to do the do the same thing. Yeah, they certainly are, Steve. You know, your stock price has turned around since you started speaking with us, I would assume, on those positive comments you said about the Chinese market. But let me come back to what your expectations then are. It seems like a lifetime ago on February 5th, I think, when you reported numbers. But you were talking about 5G mobile handsets in 2020 of between 175 million and 225 million. Do you still feel like when this year ends, that's the number you're going to be between? I think it's too early to tell. I think everyone's trying to process what what is the shape of the recovery? How long is it going to exist? I mean, clearly there's a hole in the in the China market in February, which has filled back in, as I described. But I think it's too early to tell as to what's going on with um, with the consumer, you know, in the Western areas. Now, I will tell you, tremendous amount of activity with the carriers, with the handset OEMs in terms of launching devices. We launched a device with LG in the United States last year. We did that remotely, if you can if you can believe it, meaning that we had people working from home, helping to support those launches around the world. Uh, Docomo still announced their 5G launches with seven different handsets, I think two days ago. Uh, we're obviously working very hard to make sure that some of the larger larger handset manufacturers that, that have key launches, they're gonna be successful. So we're, we're gonna do what we can do and we'll see what happens with with the market. I will tell you, uh, we are thinking and still very, very uh, optimistic that the long-term drivers of why we're so excited about the business remain intact. And in fact, I think the biggest issue you have to be prepared for is when this thing snaps back, it's going to snap back hard and make sure that you're in a position to take advantage of it. And so we're trying to do the best job we can to make sure we're prepared, but also be a good corporate citizen in, in the meantime and be a good employer and a good member of the communities that we're in. And, we're, and I think our teams are helping us do a good job there, hopefully. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I got a lightning round call yesterday on Qualcomm, and I looked at the dividend. I looked at the at where your stock was. I forgot that it was yeah, it falling so much. I just said, just buy, because you know, you're at the, uh, at the forefront of 5G. But let me ask you a question about national security. Um, China's out of the, China's come out of this. I mean, they're opening Starbucks in Wuhan. Did, have we, are we falling in danger of really falling behind in 5G just because of where we are as a nation right now and what we're doing with uh, our issues with involving COVID-19? Well, I, don't, I, I, uh, I would tell you we, we have uh, probably a, as good a lens into that as any company, just given what, what we're doing. Um, and I, I can tell you that we are not falling behind in our 5G development uh, due to some, you know, some great work in terms of quick planning. Uh, just to give you a sense for, for what's going on, we have the ability to remotely log into all of the chips that we do around the world. We've had, I think, uh, on Monday, which was the first day of our, I would say, worldwide work from home, we had 35,000 VPN connections with 37,000 total employees. So tremendous amount of work continues to, to go. We had 2 million Microsoft team messages just to, you know, that's people debugging code and, and continuing to do forward. So I think in terms of our ability to remain a leader in 5G and keep our schedules and do it. We're, you know, based on what I see at Qualcomm, we're going to be continue to be in a strong position. Um, you know, and, and, and we feel good about that. Some of that is uh, the, 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 the way in which we work, but also um, 
you know, we're we're excited about the opportunity and we'll continue to work on it. So I, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't call that a big concern. I think the biggest concern is how do we take care? How do we take care of some of the 70 percent of the economy that's trying to figure out how to deal with the uh, with the virus and probably not in a, as strong a position as, as we feel like we can be in? Yeah. Uh, well, Steve, it is interesting to note, uh, obviously, uh, that your stock price has reacted very positively uh, since you began speaking. I think you're up roughly 10 percent. Rare to see, uh, but yeah. Qualcomm shares up over 6 percent. Let me end, though, on um, share buybacks, because uh, it may in the future become uh, a nasty word and one that is not going to be embraced by people in your position. You undertook one years ago for any number of reasons. You've also had activists who've come at you. You still have a decent amount left on your authorized buyback. Do you suspend that buyback simply out of a, uh, an abundance of caution right now? Well, we, if, if, if you uh, just to recall, we, we had a very large buyback over the last year. And, of course, we thought that uh, it was it was in an, at a time when the, the stock was undervalued. And I think what happened was uh, that that ultimately uh, became true. We're, we're obviously in an unusual situation right now. Today, uh, we're, we're looking at uh, the dividend in terms of being something that uh, we know we can handle, uh, at least in the current environment. And we have a strong, as you know, we have a strong balance sheet and an investment grade rating. Um, and I think, you know, for us, it's, it's maintain your liquidity, make sure that you can continue to be strong in 5G. And, uh, you know, if we see an opportunity to buy stock at the, at the right time, we will. But, but our focus right now is making sure that our that our 5G programs are on track and that we continue to maintain a strong balance sheet. And, you know, we're in a fortunate position to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, well, Steve, always appreciate your willingness to come on with us. Steve Molenkoff is the CEO of Qualcomm. Carl and Jim, back over to both of you guys. All right. Yeah, that was good stuff, David. Uh, Jim, well, you got uh, Verizon tonight, right? Yeah, two great guests there. Uh, thank you, David. I got Verizon Continuing my theme about what's going to come out on the other side, got Verizon, which is going to be obviously uh, huge for the other side, uh, VMware, which is cloud on the other side, and then a company, uh, cybersecurity for the cloud, Zscaler. I'm trying to build portfolios of what happens when we beat the uh, COVID rather than just give up and cry and say this is the worst moment in history. I don't know. Just a little optimism there. As I put my gloves on and get my Clorox together. (laughs) Yes. Hey, sold out nationwide. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Jim, we'll see you at six, if not before. Uh, Thanks very much. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.